Well, hey, Jason here, and welcome to another episode of the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. Today, we have John Tyson with us. John's the pastor of Church of the City, New York, and in our conversation, we talk about everything from building a culture of prayer in your church and city, to discipling your own children at home, uh, to principles of renewal, and so many other amazing things. And so before we jump into our conversation with John, though, I want to just say a few things. First of all, Thank you. Thank you so much for following along on this journey. We're seven episodes into this new season, and we've just loved the engagement from pastors across Canada and around the world so much. And so if you're enjoying this podcast, please give it a review on whatever podcast platform you're on, Apple, Spotify, Google. I'm sure there's a million other ones out there. Whatever platform you're listening on, give it a review. That goes a long way. And man, if there's someone you could share it with, someone uh, who's doing ministry on the front lines that would enjoy being part of these conversations, why don't you share it with them? That goes a long way for us and might impact them in a positive way as well. And if this is your first time listening in and you connect with today's episode, I think you'd appreciate our conversation a few weeks ago with Mark Sayer. So check this out. And currently, I just got the stats in, currently our most downloaded episode of this new season was our conversation with Pastor Daryl Johnson, who's got over 50 years of ministry experience. And here in Vancouver, he really is like a shepherd father to many of the pastors in the city. And really, he's a leader like that to anyone who knows him. And the conversation he had was like a pastoral word to pastors in this time. So if you haven't heard that, put it at the top of your list. Okay, let me tell you a bit more about today's guest, John Tyson. He moved to New York just over 20 years ago to plant a church. Today, he leads Church of the City, New York, and he's been part of an incredible work of church planning and gospel renewal that's affect the whole city of New York. He's the author of Sacred Roots, Creative Minority, The Burden is Light, and his latest book, Beautiful Resistance, is coming out this summer. And check out the subtitle. I just love it so much. The title is Beautiful Resistance, The Joy of Conviction in a Culture of Compromise, and that's available now for pre-order on Amazon. He hosts the Alters Podcast, a Church Planters Incubator. He's pioneered the prayer rooms and pray.nyc and he developed a course for dads who want to disciple their sons called primal path and we talked about all these projects and more in the conversation so let's just jump in welcome to the canadian church leaders podcast we want to serve church leaders and their teams by sharing honest and thoughtful conversations about pastoral leadership. In this podcast, we were exploring the question, what does it mean to lead people in the way of Jesus in the midst of today's world? Let's jump into today's conversation. Well, hey, John, thanks for being with me today, buddy. What's up, mate? How's it going? Thanks for oh. having me on. It's so good to have you. Thanks for making time in the midst of your world, in the midst yes. of all that's going on in New York City. Just give us a little bit of a picture of your world these days. Well, man, my world is uh, its very complicated and uh, it's very, very overwhelming. Um, you know, some folks, I mean, I guess everybody's experiencing it slightly differently. Some people feel like, hey, my schedule's more free than ever. Mine's the total opposite. I feel like I'm in some sense working harder than I've ever worked. Um, there's just so much pastoral need right now inside the church, and there's just so much trauma in the city as a whole. And so I'm just trying to encourage people. A lot of folks have lost their jobs. Um, you know, a lot of people have gotten sick. And uh, the city is just, it just feels like it's under a, a cloud of despair. I mean, it is, mm. it's tangible. You can feel it. There's a, just like a deep suspicion of human presence everywhere. You know, and uh, so yeah. it is, it's, it's very, very complex. 
I'm really proud of how our church has responded and I'm really grateful for the ways a lot of people have stepped up. But mate, it is um it's the it's the moment of a lifetime in terms of leadership in pastoral care and we're just, you know, doing our best to respond to it faithfully, but it is definitely challenging and overwhelming. So Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I know earlier when we were chatting, you had mentioned just a real conviction that there's an a moment for Christian leaders or followers of Jesus in this time. And just, you kind of describe this, could there be something in the midst of this that we could maybe be missing? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess we're a month into this and, and I'm sitting here, they've just said, um, <clears throat> New York is under another month of quarantine. So they've extended it through May 15th. Yeah, today is uh, the 16th. So, man, I think people are, they, they want to be done with this. And so I think people are basically are in two postures as a month in they're either like they're lamenting and grieving what they've lost. And so they're looking backwards with heartache hmm. and people are just trying to get through it. When will we get, when will we get back to a new reality? And here's the thing. I think most people know it's not going to be the same, but they want to accelerate to whatever it will be. And I think one of my great concerns is that we're going to miss the actual moment. You know, mm. most of us um, have, have been formed by a culture in such a way that we are terrible in situations like that, like the one that we're in right now. And I was, uh, I, I'm worried that when you, you know, two years from now and you look back and you say, hey, tell me about the pandemic. You're like, yeah, I spent the first half of it grieving what I'd lost. And then I spent the rest of it basically medicating, you know. Mm. And so if, if you say, well, what, what came out of the pandemic? It would be like, well, I just binged a bunch of shows and I got mad at everybody in my house because we were in proximity too closely. And, um, and I don't want us to miss this opportunity of this moment to be present with God, to pay attention to our hearts and our formation, to pay attention to our relationship with him, to pay attention to the people who are around us. And uh, I believe that, one of the redemptive opportunities is good to be more fully awake to God and to the lives we're actually living. So I, I, I'm worried that we're going to miss it. It'll be over. And mm. we're going to look back and we're going to be filled with regret that we didn't redeem what was present around us. So, What does that look like for you to, to seize that, to grab hold of that? You know, you've been, we're coming out of Easter now and it's like almost like a lot of pastors going, Oh, I can get up some, up for air um how are you sort of going okay this is how i'm going to seize this moment practically or even just in terms of like posture in your mind and heart well i mean it's I, i'm basically trying to do it in categories you know so category category number one is like how do i carve out um time for god so you know like a, a lot of time is lost in commuting and um and so, so how do i basically reclaim the morning how do i set those those patterns and rhythms where I prioritize the presence of God. You know, time feels funky right now for most of us. You know, the ways that we normally segment our days is by, by dressing and relocating and being in different environments that basically signal to us that our behavior should be different. So you've got to reinsert those. Otherwise, it all just sort of feels like a blur. You've got to have markers to, to use time differently. So, yeah, it's um, basically... It's spending time with God in the morning where I'm just trying to be intimate and present with him. And mm. then, you know, the prayer of exam at the end of the day, Lord, what's coming up? Where do I feel close to you? Where do I feel further away from you? I'm putting more time. I, I'm doing two things. I'm reading more content than ever and less Bible than ever. And by what I mean, 
I'm meditating on small chunks of scripture mm. um, more deeply. So, you know, I've, I've been stuck in Colossians 3 for a couple of days. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. What does that even mean? <laughs> I've died and my life is present somewhere mysteriously kept in God through Jesus. And so I'm just sitting with it. I'm meditating on it word by word. So I'm trying to go deep in his word, broad in my understanding and, um, you know, sort of present in my prayer. That's, that's my relationship with God with, with my, my core relationship, with my family, you know, like I'm keeping a date wife, a, a date night with my mm. wife and we've designated one room. Well, actually it's not even a room. It's one part of a room. But on Wednesday night, we sit at a certain table and light the candle and get the kids. The kids have Zoom youth group. And we get in another room and we're just trying to like, what's happening in your heart? We're being present to one another. Hmm. And, um, and then, yeah, with each of my kids, I'm, I'm literally trying to observe them. What am I noticing? You know, it, it's possible to be around people all the time and not see anything. So I'm trying to look at them differently. I'm trying to listen a lot more. I'm, I'm trying to ask them about, what they're learning about God and life and their own hearts and all the rest of it. So I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be present with it. It's what I don't want to happen, which I don't want to put guilt on, but I don't want it to happen. It was like, tell me about the quarantine. Yeah. It was four of us in four different rooms with four different screens, watching four different preferences, hmm. you know? So I'm trying to do those things that bring us together. And uh, yeah, just basically I would sum it up with like intentionality intentionality yeah. of presence in the midst of everything. Um, you've written a number of books. One short one is called create a minority. That's really impacted me. I wonder if you could just give a quick summary to that. And I just want to jump into that as a theme but before we jump okay. into it. Just wanted to kind of tell us about this idea of creative min minority, what that, that even that term means. Well, you said it's a short book. Most people call it mercifully short. And, uh, it's the, it's the best selling thing I've ever written. I think it's people's like, hey, read this. You can read it in under an hour. Um, I, yeah, I was basically, you know, I've lived in New York for 15 years and I've been certainly, um, I, I haven't been at the center of creating the missional conversation, but I've certainly read deeply at the center around it. You know, a lot of source material and a lot of contemporary thinkers. But I've got the gift of living. It's, it's changed a little bit because the world's flattened and, and globalization through media and technologies flattened it a little bit, but I've had the gift of living in a truly secular place, much like you, Canada is way, way more secular than the U S but New York is a lot like Canada and it's, it's, it's a country. It's, it doesn't, it, New York does not represent the United States of America. It's its own place in many ways. And so the gift of um, living in the midst of a secular culture and, and secular as Taylor defines it, not as the absence of God, but as the, as, as, um, the decentering of Christianity. And in some sense now the, the, the pushing out and shunning of it. Um, and so I basically try to answer the question, how does the church be faithful and fruitful hmm. in the midst of a secular culture? So on one side, you have Benedict option, which would be a little bit, I, I love that book actually. Um, but it would be a little bit more sort of like retreat to maintain potency. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, you'd have faithful presence, which is basically just be there, but it's, it's being there without faith. And I'm Pentecostal charismatic. 
it's like just be there, but there's no faith of that outcome. And I think we're called to a fruitful presence, not just a faithful presence. And so I was basically trying to position an idea. And then um, I heard, uh, I read an article in First Things by uh, Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs called uh, Becoming a Credit, on Being a Creative Minority. And he said, this is the Jewish posture. And it was like being a minority, keeping the strength of your convictions, but engaging the world in such a way that you shape it in some capacity. So the subtitle of the book is uh, Creative Minority, Influencing Culture Through Redemptive Participation. Hmm. And that, in essence, is the heart of the book. Influence rather than control, which means it comes to the Greek word, the, the idea, uh, the Latin word of fluency, it's flowing through us. And... Um, through redemptive participation, which means the way that we participate in culture is, is bending it ever so smaller towards redemption. So that was it, how to be the church. So it's built on six core principles that I think mark out what a creative minority is. And I'm actually rewriting the book right now with the seventh chapter on prayer. And uh, so it's going to be slightly expanded, still under an hour, but another chapter on prayer with a discussion guide on the website so people can basically you know, try and actually build creative minorities yeah. in communities and, and live this out of distinct postures, distinct postures. It's brilliant. And I couldn't recommend it more highly. And I think it really, one thing that stood to me, it captures the imagination of millennials and the next generation behind in terms of what this, like a vision worth living into, like a Christian yeah. vision. Um, in this moment, as you think about the church as a creative minority in a city like New York, in the midst of COVID, I just wonder what your imagination is, is thinking or what you're seeing as the church kind of lives into that reality of a counterformed presence with something else distinct to offer in the midst of this. You know, honestly, I wish I could say more, but I'm only, I'm not even 24 hours into rethinking everything. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, so, so for example, my, uh, 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 our group's pastor, amazing uh, woman, she called me yesterday and she said, you know, like this online Zoom thing's not working. I said, what do you mean? She goes, oh, like everybody's still coming to us. She said, but we have imported an offline framework, pasted it online. And she said, I'm trying to find like how to do formation and community and Zoom. And all I'm finding is like literally technique, business etiquette technique. And that's what Christians are writing on. How to host a Zoom meeting. Make sure your mic is turned off when you enter. She's like, this is business etiquette technique. This is not counterformation. Hmm. So I just commissioned her into a deep dive on the, the psychology of community participation online versus so I, I, I'm too early yeah. into rethinking the, the digital life component, which is definitely going to shake all of our futures. I, I mean, I guess I'd say this. I, I'd say this is a, an initial observation. It's going to be two things, the absolute best of live, deep relationships and the absolute best of the utilization of technology that's available to us. And right now inside the church, you've got purists on either side who are not integrating. So you would get the online people who are like, leverage, leverage, scale, scale, scale. And people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. What about the incarnation? What about being present in community? And then you've got the present community people who are like, the only thing that matters is in person. And it's like, you're missing the greatest digital opportunity. Paul would slap you if he heard you say that. The reformers, the, the apostle? Yes. The reformers, <laughs> the reformers would come back and they would, they, I mean, they would give you the stink eye, man. I mean, 
So I think we're going to see an emergence of an integration of the best of those things. And the church is always, I think, in many ways, at its best in terms of missional posture when it's and not either or. Hmm. Hmm. Talk to me about adding that seventh chapter and this theme of prayer. Um, you guys have launched prayer rooms in New York City. There's been a real sense following you and your content that prayer isn't just a thing you do. It's becoming like one of the main things. Can you speak to that value and just how that's taken hold and root in your life? Yes. Well, I mean, prayer, I mean, a couple of things. Number one, Jesus said, so it's not how much you pray. So the Pharisees prayed a lot. Jesus said, you think you'll be heard because of your many words. That's not how it works. So I want to acknowledge that there could be a self-righteousness and a legalism and superiority that's connected to like being a person of prayer and praying church. Our, our ability to moralize and form self-righteousness out of any good thing is breathtaking. <laughs> I mean, I, I think prayer is based on hunger. I, I don't pray because I like the discipline of prayer itself. I find prayer hard a lot. I pray because I want God. Mm. I, I want I want the person that I'm talking to. I want more of God's presence. I want more of his reality. I want more of his thoughts. I want to hear from him. Um, you know, I'm not trying to be like the prophets of Baal who just get like worked up into a frenzy and try and get God to change God's mind. You know, I, I, so the motives behind it to me are tremendously important. So we pray because we want him. Mm. We pray because we love the world and we know that prayer changes what happens in it. We pray for our friends because we feel powerless and limited. And after we've done everything, it's not enough, but we need someone greater and more powerful to, to break in. So it's, I think it's a combination of, and, you know, studying the history of revivals and seeing what God can do. This isn't mm -hmm. it. There's a great invitation for more. So I think all of those forces behind it sort of, they got me to the point as a leader and they got our church to the point where it was just like, this is it, man. What else is there? You know? And um, so it's, we've, I feel like we've been both invited and backed into a corner by God hmm. around the issue of seeking him and our, our powerless powerlessness and the importance of the hour in which we live and the opportunity before us. And so we're like, let's just seek him above all things. So that's the heart. Now, establishing it is real work. I mean, it costs, I mean, our church puts no exaggeration, hundreds of thousands of dollars into our prayer ministry every year. It's, it's expensive. We have multiple staff on this. We have a, just a sea of godly volunteers. And um, so we've tried to build scalable, you know, like not, uh, yeah, a model, some practices in essence to be able to build that out and sustain that. But, that, that's basically how it's emerged into our church. Yeah, so we launched a ministry called Pray NYC, which is basically what we call our, we have an internal prayer culture and an externally faced one. The internal one is primarily around in, um, formation and care, um, ministry times, uh, that sort of thing. The outward one is about intercession and basically equipping the church to contend for spiritual awakening uh, across our region. So it's sort of split with two focuses and we have teams that work on, on both of those things. And then there's, tell me some of the rhythms of the prayer room, but then also I'd love to hear about, there's, I think there's a history way before you have pastors in New York praying together that you're part of. I'd love to hear about both the prayer rooms, but then also that group of pastors that's meeting and praying for the city. 
I mean, the, yeah, the prayer room, I mean, Corey Russell, I don't know if you know Corey, but Corey is my favorite preacher on earth. There's nobody who stirs my spirit like Corey Russell. Just a fire-breathing, tongue-speaking, old-school, prophetic man of God. So Corey Russell said to me, you know, so I, I, I didn't know what, I didn't know about IHOP. You know, I, didn't, I didn't know all these things. I just had a heart for prayer. And so um, the, the lady that directs Pray NYC did an internship, and Corey was one of her leaders there. And we were having a conversation one day, and she played me some of Corey's stuff, and I was like, this is what it sounds like in my heart. Mm. Who's, who's this person? So I, I called up Corey and I brought him to New York and uh, just did a day of questions with him. And he said everything I didn't expect. He said, don't try and do 24-7 prayer. It will crush you. It will become legalism. It will be dead. He said, do one prayer meeting, make it amazing, and then do two. If the second one sucks, just go back to one and then rebuild and then try two again. And he said, scale at the pace of life. Hmm. scale at the pace of God's presence and energy and grace. And it uh, doesn't mean that it's not hard, but you have a sense of like, we're forcing this in the flesh or like we're stretching in the spirit. And so that was so freeing. So we, you know, our, our, prayer, our, our whole prayer ministry started with about four hours a week. I just basically said to our church staff, God have mercy on us. We've been running our church as prayerless leaders. We will start our day in prayer. And mm-hmm. that's how it started. It started calling our staff to pray. You'd be amazed at how many pastors and church staff don't pray. They may do like, like basically grace over the day. Thanks for today, Lord. Bless everything we do. You're not going to get power. You're not going to get the book of Acts out of a grace prayer over your day. I'm, I'm not judging them. I'm just saying if you want more you got to, it's just got a different different value set so and then um it was actually really crappy that was bad the prayer was bad i didn't want to go to it some days and then this woman who was on staff said i've got a few thoughts about how to improve it so she basically put like a little bit of a model and some structure and then we just basically scaled it from that so now it looks like uh, four four hours of prayer a day five hours on sunday and um we just build as we have grace to build and uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's basically mm. where it's at right now. So it's, it's a beautiful thing. Going online with Zoom has only accelerated everything we've done. Interesting. And so, yeah, so from now on, we're like, we will add a Zoom or online component forever because we've got people joining us from all over the world. And for our team, they're experiencing no stress. So this is not like, oh, crap, this is a disaster. We need to build a prayer thing. You're like, let's just roll this online. Mm. And that, so... There's a difference between responding in a crisis and then being prepared for one. And I'd say we were prepared for this in prayer mm. because of the culture that we put into this. And so we will go through other crises, use this crisis to build the structure for the culture that we need in the future. But in terms of the other group, yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I've been in New York 15 years now, which is kind of crazy. Basically, most of my adult ministry has been mm. here in the city. And there was a group of people who were about 15 years before that when New York was a, not a sexy place at all, pipeline, disaster. Um, they were absolutely heartbroken at the murder rates and the crime and the racism in New York City. And they said, God, we need a move of God. We need a move of God. And so they basically covenanted together. They formed a thing. There's two of them. One was like the Christian Coalition, which is the Pentecostals, Christ, Christ Covenant Coalition. And then there was a concerts of prayer, which is the Presbyterians and Baptists. 
and they basically merged. And for 30 years, they've had an annual prayer retreat and they've had a prayer meeting uh, every month. It's lasted over 25 years. Wow. And so I've been able to roll into that as um, I rolled into that as a younger church planter and now sort of as like a, a middle-aged stable pastor in New York, I guess. But it's just been a joy to see those who've contended before. And I think the key to that, honestly, is the folks who've been here for 30 years can't feel threatened or angry by young leaders coming in. Mm. They can't, they, you can't, you can't pray Lord send labors and they show up and then you judge them as gentrifiers and it go well. Hmm. But on the other hand, the young folks who need to come in need to honor those who've been praying and seeking God and realize most of their fruit is going to be the prayers of other generations landing now. Hmm. And so I think that humility towards one another is what's made it work in New York. And I think that's probably a key for other places. Yeah. I feel like that's a big piece of our journey in the Canadian church context, I'm sure globally, is this very distinct groups, a young into church planning or into entrepreneurial rethinking group of leaders, whether they're in churches or planting. And then these senior leaders have done the hard work. They've, they've paid the price. And as they, as, and there's, so there's this real kind of baton passing moment that I wonder if COVID's expediting it at all. I think that may be premature to speculate, but if you were to give any more thoughts to either of those groups, and I I know I'm generalizing, but you kind of just sort of spoke to both as you're sort of perceiving yourself sort of in a lot of ways, John, in the middle of those two, you're 15 years in. Yeah. You speak to both groups for a little bit because I know we're wrestling with that transition here. Yeah. I mean, one phrase that has basically been my operating system and paradigm in trying to sort of, I would say, facilitate those relationships. It's a pretty simple phrase, but it's, it's young people want destiny. That's the cry of their heart. They're going after something. And the elder generation, they want legacy. What am I going to leave behind? And so I said, the key is for the elderly to make their legacy, the releasing of the destiny of the young. Mm. That's, that's the key to make it work. So, um, you know, so there's a, there's a pastor here in New York, for example, his name's Dr. Mark Rivera. Amazing, amazing city father. I mean, he's probably been here his whole life. I mean, he's, he's in his early, he's in his, his um, mid to late sixties right now. True, true New Yorker. And, um, so when I first came to New York, one kind of pastor was literally like, I mean, literally it was like, you white little Rob Bell hipsters, you think you're going to come into New York and do your cool suburban thing? And I was like, whoa, man, whoa. I've been fasting and praying for this city for a long time. And, you know, like I, I, I understood that defensive. He wasn't like that at all. He was like, welcome, hmm. welcome. We've been praying that you'd show up. And he's just been, gosh, such a blessing. You know, none of the church plants have buildings. And he's like, here's my building. You want to do baptism wow. services? You can have my building for free. Please mm. come on in. It will be our wanted to serve you. And so, you know, I look at another guy, um, uh, Bishop Joseph Matera, another city father. He's been here a long time and he's just like the same thing. He was, he was one of the, the, the prayer leaders and still is one of the prayer leaders, amazing gift of intercession. And he's like, thank you for coming, man. Thank you. You know? Mm-hmm. So I would say to those older folks, don't be defensive. Use the resources you have. 
you know, pour into them. You know, like I've always, one of the things I've always respected is like, I want my fruit to show up in other people's trees. It doesn't all have to come through my life, man. I want to sow into others, believe in others. And I want to embrace my limitations that the culture has changed, that I am older and that I've got to move from being a young warrior and probably not even a king, but I need to move to being a sage and an empower. So I would mm. say to those elderly folks, like codify into a body of wisdom the things you've learned that are really helpful to pass on. Not just like your, your personal preferences and little tips and tricks, but like what's the body of knowledge that you've learned that you can pass on? And then how do you do it in a non-condescending way? Mm. And then to the young folks, I would say it's about honor. It's about honor. It's about honor. Most of the things you do as an early church planter, you'd be embarrassed about as a later church planter. You'll be operating out of naive confidence and the whole city's going to be looking at you going, are you kidding? I look at what I did when I came here now and I cringe. Oh man. God, God blessed it. God blessed it. It was at the time it felt right, but I look at it now and I cringe. And so it's, it's hard. Yeah. You know, he was saying, Tim Keller said this to me when I first moved to New York. And this is before he was Tim Keller. He was just Tim. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> He said to me, there's two keys to making it in New York, John. He said, number one, you've got to feel like you're bringing something to the kingdom ecosystem that does not exist. Otherwise, just give your money to another church already doing what you think should happen. And he said, but secondly, you've got to realize New York will, will always be bigger than all of us. And you need to realize you're a tiny part of the kingdom ecosystem. He says, if you can maintain, I guess that's level five leadership, that humility, and that ambition mm. you contribute to your city. So I always urge those two things to church planters. What's your unique offering? Not like I'm doing this better than you. You guys don't get it. I'm going to show you how, but like what's your unique kingdom offering? And then how do you partner and realize it's only a small part of things. And so for a lot of church planters that so many of them are just imitating other leaders that haven't found their voice in their core. Mm. And um, so it, it, it Take time to get that and know what you bring to the table in humility. That's yeah. that's probably what I'd say to those two spaces. I'm a young church planner and uh, laughing as you're chatting about being embarrassed because I'm like, yeah, it's going to be my story as well. Uh, thoughts on how to honor the generation before, like just real practical. What does that look like? How do I do that better? Honestly, mate, it's, um, I think it's, it's listening and asking, inviting them into your process. Hey, is, hey, will you join my board? Can I meet with you once a month? What are you seeing? What are you seeing that I'm missing? What are other people saying that I'm not aware of or whatever? It's just basically developing relationships with them. Hmm. And then um, asking them if they'd be willing to bring their gifts to bear on your body. Hmm. Any time a city father comes into our church, people love it. They love it. Wow. They feel they feel pastored and nurtured in a different way that, you know, particularly when I was a younger leader, you know, I think I think people would just say, like, what can you teach me? What do you know about New York, John? You know, you've been here two years, mate. Who are you? Now you're some expert. And I'd say, no, look, I can, I can talk to you a lot. I've walked with God for a long time. I can talk to you about Jesus, but I'm not going to bring the other guys in and really know about New York. 
Mm. And um, yeah, I think inviting them into what you're doing, I think is a hugely important thing. And how you speak of people, how you speak of them. There can be a condescension in the young church planet, which is like, oh gosh, all these people that don't get it. I'm going to come show them what, how to do it properly. Mm. And uh, God will get that out of you. Mm. If you don't repent it out, God will get it out. If you just do something, he just would discipline it out of you because he can't bless that attitude. You know? I know for you, I don't know how long this has been, but you've been studying, diving deep in revival history. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about that journey. When did that start for you? When did you start to really sort of steady and lean in in that way? I've been, I've been thinking about that a little bit lately. And I think, honestly, I think it's, I think I became a Christian. I, I, I don't, I, I don't quite know how to categorize what I became a Christian in the church. I became a Christian in the youth group, the season of Australian church history, what was happening. But I'll tell you this, it felt like revival. Hmm. And I have never to this day encountered anything like it. Now I've gone back and examined, is that just because I was like psychologically vulnerable? Is it because of my age? Was it because of, am I delighting in first exposure? Am I delighting in going from small group suckiness to large group excellence? I've tried to discern all of those factors to really determine what was happening in my heart. I actually think it was a move of God. Hmm. I think that's, that's where it began. I went to church and God was there. End of story. It wasn't great Bible teaching, though there was Bible teaching. It wasn't just um, artistic performance. It was super creative. God was there. Hmm. And church would be three and a half hours and you'd be on your face at the end of it saying, please don't ever let this end. So I think the way you come into two things happen. The way you come into the kingdom in many ways shapes what you're called to do in the kingdom. Hmm. And it also produces a massive neglect that at some point you go and collect the other side of the experience. So when I look at all these like non-denominational pastors becoming Calvinists, I'm like, I totally get that. You're in a pragmatic environment and you wanted some theology and Calvinists have an answer for everything. I get that. You, you go and you get the other thing you didn't get. Why do people love Anglicans? It's because you grew up basically in an entertainment pragmatic model and some rooted liturgy like feels stable. I get mm. So it, so, so a big part of it was I came in through that and I've never gotten that taste out of my mouth. Mate. It was the taste of glory, the goodness of God in his presence is fullness of joy. And that taste of fullness has been something on my lips. I've wanted more of my whole Christian mm. life. So the last few years, I so said, when I turned 40, I did this, uh, I'm 43. I did this exercise. My mentor said to me, you, your personality midlife is going to hit you terribly hard. And he said, so I made it my goal to have a theologically informed midlife crisis. And so I spent a summer doing this exercise that I call sovereign themes, where I basically try to audit my life and say, what has God marked my story with in such a way that is unique? We all, there's an arc, there's an arc to human life and the shared experiences being human that we all have. Um, but what's unique? And one of those things was like my access to Pentecostal leaders and the culture of revival and prayer. That is, that is unique to me. 
Mm. I'm, I'm the only guy I know who was like in Reinhard Bonnke's School of Fire Evangelism Healing Training and being mentored by Tim Keller at the same time. So one month I'm sitting with Tim Keller while he's going through the nine required pastoral units of New York City. And then I'm in a room where everybody in the entire room is slain in the spirit by Reinhard, Reinhard Bonnke. So that's like, you can't make that up. And that's been consistent my whole life. There's always been, regardless of the mentors, the training, the contextualization, the culture, the missiology, there's always been prophetic intercessory revivalist leaders that have merged into my life to keep that flame burning. Hmm. And I guess in the sovereign themes, I realized, I guess I'm called to steward some of this. It's not just a novelty, it's a call. And so I've basically the last three years tried to pay attention to that and to basically preach on it, develop resources, inspire people, tell stories. And that's what's led to the revival tours and, and that sort of stuff. Try and, try and capture and awaken people's imaginations for God to do that in our time. I feel like one of the things I see you do is like dig into these moments in history or these places and these people and then pull out of it like gold for the church. Like what are some of those, like I, I see you doing that and it's a gift yes. for those that get to listen to you. What are some of those nuggets that you feel like as you look at themes throughout revival history, you're like, man, we've got to pull this out and we've got to take this for what it is as a gift to the church. What are some of those? Well, yeah. I mean, so I've actually, I've actually just done a whole podcast where I'm on the road you know, like I'm standing in front of Jonathan Edwards' church talking about what happened in that church during the revival. That's called the Altus podcast. So that comes out next month. Um, so, yeah, so I basically go, I think we talked through eight different revivals and leaders, moves of God. And that's the whole podcast is drawing out the principles. Let me give you one meta principle. And it's really quite simple. And it's this, God comes where he's wanted. Hmm. That's it. So why was there revival in the Hebrides and not in Glasgow? Glasgow was strategic. It was a, a center. It was a place of power and influence. And why did it come on some random, tiny little island in the middle of nowhere? And I can tell you why. Because they wanted it more in the tiny little island they did in Glasgow. And that's the principle of hunger. Hunger creates an environment that draws and attracts the presence of God. And so few of us carry that hunger for his presence and so we, we know this is true if you could put a hundred christians in a room two of them you'll say what is the culture of your heart and they have cultivated a hunger for jesus and intimacy with him you know when it comes to churches people will drive past 50 dying lukewarm churches to go to a church that is alive hmm. we know the principle is true but revival is when that happens over a region. It's collective hunger over a region. And that's just what we haven't been able to, to coordinate or to, to stir right now. So mm. that's the, the, the meta principle is God comes where he's wanted. Do you really want it? That's the question. Pastor listening right now is saying, I want to contend for that or I want to participate. What's the response? What do you do? Well, I mean, Jesus is so kind, mate. Yeah, I mean, you open the door. Open the door of your life. Open your schedule. Open your heart. Starts with repentance. Like, oh, gosh. In, in Revelation chapter 2, he just simply says three things. Remember, repent, and return. Do the things you did at first. So, so the, 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 the thing is, I've always, I mean, everybody has a different measure of faith and capacity and Let's see, Paul's like, don't think of yourself more highly than you are. You're going to know what your call is and all of that. But I've always 
ever since I've been a Christian, I've always been one of those early morning walk the streets of a city intercessor. It's just who I am. I'm not sure because, you know, you cannot sustain in the flesh what, you know, worldly ambition under the cloak of spiritual ambition. You just can't. You just, you just, you get distracted. It'll get too hard. So I've always been one of those intercessors. And, um, I've always thought just anytime I, I fail to do that, I'm like, oh, that's an indicator. I'm not doing what I did at first. You know, out of my first love is that. And um, so I would just tell pastors like to reevaluate. What was your first love? What does it mean mm. to remember, repent, and return? Remember what it was like. Repent that you've gotten away from it and return to that initial pursuit of God like you did. And uh, sometimes that's through fasting. Again, sometimes that's through the changing of the schedules. But it's putting it's putting God at the center and then rearranging everything around that rather hmm. than putting everything at the center and trying to paste God off the top or make him a part of it. So it's it's, it's an attitude, so it's, it's a turning of the heart back towards God. It looks different for everyone, but that's the principle. I appreciate that. Appreciate that a lot. I want to shift gears a little bit. Um I think it's actually deeply connected to revival, but it might feel like a pivot. And it's, it's the primal path stuff you've been part of. It's this idea of actually like the discipleship in the home and just tell us a bit about the primal path journey and the resource and what that's looked like with you and your son. Yeah. So let me just explain what the primal path is. The primal path was basically something I developed for my son to help him walk from adolescence into manhood. I realized that, um, there was just a, a broken process of forming good men in the world. Every other culture seemed to have, whether it was, you know, Messiah warriors, um, First Nation peoples, you know, a vision quest, a, a rite of passage of pathway, the bar mitzvah. And I realized, like, we have nothing. What do we have? How is a typical young person formed in church today? It's like a little bit of Bible content, a retreat. How was a young, young man formed in society? It's basically Pornhub, um, Sparknotes, Fortnite. These are, this is what forms our young men. And I basically realized I need to go back and figure out how other cultures formed young men. And so I basically did a ton of reading and then um, built, built it over six years. And so I designed a thing that's basically the primal path, intentional fathers raising sons of consequence. And it's designed to help walk basically a 13 year old into an old one. And uh, so I, I built a course of about 14 exercises that you go through to build this for your son. So I want to be clear. It's like, I'm not going to disciple your son. It's, it's not a book. It is like a course for you to design this for your son based on mm. he is. So it's, it's partly timeless principles of manhood combined with an audit and understanding of who your son is and designing around that. So yeah, so for my son, it looked like um, a daily time of uh, connection and formation study and then um, a weekly man night where we got together for man school and, um, and then yeah, these various challenges and uh, it's really quite extraordinary. It, it ended with us, uh, him doing the gap year and then us hiking 500 miles across the, uh, Spain doing the Camino de Santiago to process the whole journey and to debrief his gap year. And then mm. him, it started running off the coast of New York uh, out into the water as a baptism manhood. And it ended by him running off the coast of Spain at the end of the world at Finisterre. 
uh, being baptized into being baptized into manhood for the blessing ceremony. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's built with four pillars. It's our preparation, dealing with your own crap so that you are aware of your own drama and that you pass on blessing rather than brokenness. Then it's initiation. It's how to design something that brings him into a liminal space where he has an awareness that he's now being formed and he's moving from one state to another. Um, formation, which is the actual process of doing that. So I've got a whole ton of stuff on how to form a young man. And then recognition, it's honoring and inviting him into the community of formed men with the cause being them themselves and a mission for others. So that's, that's basically what it is. It's at primalpath.co hmm. is uh, where it's found. But yeah, I basically tried to design something that dads could do themselves. And it's hard work, man, I'm telling you. You can't yeah. wing it. You can't wing raising a son. So hmm. that was basically some of the vision behind it. And it says, uh, you know, the end of Malachi, man, it's turning the hearts of the fathers to the sons. It's all that stuff. You know? I love that. Tell me what that's done for your friendship. I mean, you put real time. You're like meeting with him day day to day, week to week, and then this thing. Tell me about what that's done. As I just feel like not a lot of people have a vision for a friendship between hang, a hang father and a son. Hang on one second. Yo, Nate, come here. This is, uh, I don't know if you'd be able to, this is, can you hear from my son? Can you stick that in your ear so if you can hear? Can you hear that? Can you hear? Okay. Nate, can, you uh, hear, can you hear me, bud? Yes, I can. Okay. Hey, buddy. This, Jason basically designed Youth Alpha for Canada. Yeah, we, and, we watched it for uh, youth. Yes, and he's a church fan. Anyway, he was just Good asking you, the question, what has the primal path done for you? And for our relationship. And so instead of me always telling people or whatever, I'm like, well, my son's here. Let him talk. Maybe share a couple of thoughts with the, the church leaders of Canada. Um, it's made me, I'd say, way more confident in myself um, and, hmm. and just having that, that foundation of knowledge that that sowed into me made it, made it way easier for me to not only like ask questions, but kind of figure out which questions were the right ones to ask because that's because it's not really a lot of answers, but just kind of trying to forge the way forward was, was made way easier. Um, and I, I think dad and I are way closer because it was just, yeah. there was always something for us to like touch base on and be like, oh, I'm struggling with this. And so dad could, dad could step in and be like, okay, this is what I dealt through, like personal experience, be able to pour out of knowledge and wisdom into me. And so that made it very helpful and actually easier to turn to him than to like step away because then I'd just kind of flounder if I was if I wasn't asking him for help. And so it made it, way more crucial for me to kind of depend on him and hmm. as he like poured all that knowledge into it. I love that. Sweet man, and there you go. Oh, yes. you're, you're amazing, Nate. Can I ask you a question, bro, while I got you here? Yeah. Um, have, you, have you done the, the imaginary work of being like, man, will I do that with my son one day? Oh, 100% I plan on doing it with my son. Like the, before I even finish the private path, I was like, I'm gonna do that with my, with my sons. So. You don't have a son coming anytime soon, do you? No, no, nowhere close. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, buddy. Well, thanks for jumping on, man. That's really fun. And it's good to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you as well. Sweet. Thanks, mate. People always ask and uh, they just happen to be right there. So. Oh, I love that. Well, That's so good, yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, well, I really appreciate that. Um, I'm really, I'm burdened by this reality that it feels as though the work of discipling the next generation has been delegated off to programs, mm. you know, and I think as pastors, like we see that challenge, but it's, mm. it's very difficult to even just engage in our own home. It can feel really in intimidating as you've been working with dads and moms and parents and 
helping them catch a vision for that? What have you found helpful to sort of get that, that vision off the ground into action? You know, it's just, it's just reminding them um, that they can do it. Hmm. You, you can do, you can do this. And I always tell people just do what you can do what you can. You have no idea. It's really honestly about sowing hmm. and you're just sowing into the soil of your kids' lives. And so many of the things that I thought were like, this is going to change. And they were like, I don't even remember that. And so many tiny little things in passing have marked them and shaped them. So to me, it's just like the number one thing I'd say is like, keep the emotional relation, keep the relationship there. Because if that bond is there, you can, that is a pathway to, to everything. Hmm. But if you lose that, you're going to, you're going to struggle. So the number one thing I've, I've done, I've worked so hard to do with both of my kids. And I've, I've done, there's been seasons when I've been really good in seasons where I've been scrambling to get it back, but to just keep that emotional, relational connection with your kids. Most people do a great job when they're little, okay when they're in middle school, and then they just sort of fail in their high school years when you need to double down. And I think it's like, well, I need to empower them. I need to experience this. That's when you need to double down on the emotional, relational commitment. Mm. And um, that's, seems, that's, that's, it's not perfect, but it's, it's been very functional and life-giving in our family. Oh, thanks for sharing that. Last thought before we jump off today. You've got a book coming out um, called Beautiful Resistance, this idea of the joy of conviction in a culture of compromise. And I've heard you speak to these themes, and it's just, it's just so compelling. I just want you to just to share a little bit of that idea um, just as, as we close. I just think it's so timely for this moment. And it's really, I think, the task of pastors today is to pastor people towards conviction in the midst of a culture of compromise. So I'd just love to speak to that before we wrap up. Yeah, well, it's actually, it's based off um, a scene in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life that, that I read in uh, Charles Marsh's biography, Strange Glory. And uh, there was this thing where Bonhoeffer was, you, I'm assuming that, uh, a knowledge of Bonhoeffer here, um, but he's running Finkenwald, his seminary, and it was this Finkenwald that shaped his uh, cost of discipleship and life together. And it was an underground seminary that they, they basically pulled together to train a new generation of pastors in light of the compromise of the German church with the Third Reich. And one of his friends uh, is a little concerned that Bonhoeffer's like too intense and taking it too seriously. And so he's, Nielsen comes and visits him. And then basically Bonhoeffer rows him across to an airport, across the river to where there's an airport where Hitler is landing and training troops. And Bonhoeffer stands on the banks of the river and says, our discipline and formation has to be stronger than that of Hitler and the Germans. And then they wrote back. Hmm. And uh, I just sort of feel like we're, we're at a moment too, where there's so much change and compromise in our culture and the church feels like it wants to give in. And my basic appeal is we have to have a process, not just of passive formation, but actual resistance against the forces of the world that are corrupting the church. And um, how do we do that though in a beautiful, not a bitter or self-righteous way? That's the key. Hmm. And so what does a beautiful resistance look like? And so I try and address what I perceive to be some of the most important things that we need to resist in our, in our world today. And so that's basically the big theme of the book. So oh, it comes, comes out in uh, July. Well, you're a gift, man. Every time I chat with you, I find my own faith and conviction grows. And just so thankful for your time today. I know you got Thai food coming soon. 
<laughs> and so I don't want you to miss Tyson that. Thursday. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for being with us today, man. No worries, mate. An absolute joy. And uh, just just to say to all the pastors out there, thank you for what you do. I bless you. I honor you. I don't know if you're on some small prairie or you're in a, an urban core, but I'm just grateful for your faithfulness and just pray that God will just literally give you an increase of laborers in harvest. And I'm just grateful for all you're doing for Canada. So thank you. Huge thank you to John Tyson for making time to be with us today. And really thank you to John for making so many incredible resources for church leaders and pastors. I don't know anyone pumping out more high quality, worthwhile content than John is right now. And so we've put links to all of his books and podcasts and resources on our blog. You can find it at ccln.ca. We've got links to everything. And you can pre-order his latest book, Beautiful Resistance, today on Amazon. I want to just give you a taste of some of the stuff that's coming up on the podcast. Here are some of the guests we've got in the next coming weeks. John Mark Comer, Matt Menzel, Shayla Visser, Nikki Gumbel, uh, Daniel M., Kim Moran. It's an incredible season out in front of us, and I can't wait for you to hear all these conversations. And we can make this podcast happen every week because of some amazing people that love pastors and love leaders and love the local church. And one of those partners is Briarcrest College and Seminary. Briarcrest has been developing leaders for the church for the last 85 years. Every year, hundreds of young adults choose Briarcrest. And what they find is this intentional discipleship community that helps them grow in their faith and find deep grounding for a life of impact. Despite this pandemic, online or on campus, this fall, they're going forward. And so you can find out more information about what they offer and all their programs online. And this is what I do know about Briarcrest. They love the local church and we're so, so grateful for the work they do and for helping us make the work of the Canadian Church Leaders Network happen. And thank you to all of you for listening today. We'll see you guys later.